ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Welcome to This Week. Why would police use a taser on a 95-year-old woman with dementia? That's a question that'll now be examined by the courts after a 33-year-old senior constable was charged over an incident at a nursing home in southern New South Wales. 95-year-old Claire Nowland suffered serious injury in the altercation and this week died in hospital. Obviously, this is a very traumatic event and would have been particularly sad for that family. And the government, of course, expresses its condolences to the children and grandchildren of Ms Nowland. The police force has defended its handling of the investigation. I've said from the beginning, and it's important now, that this this is a proper process to remain fair and to see that the investigation is not prejudiced. And I am confident that we have come to a position now seven days later that this matters before the court without that interference. But it's raised serious questions more broadly about the police use of force and transparency in critical incidents. Michael Maguire is the former police ombudsman for Northern Ireland. It's considered the gold standard globally on police accountability. What you have is basically three models of police oversight. You have the internal affairs model, which is where all of the investigations are carried out by the police on the police. There are civilian review models, which is typically the the nature of police oversight in Australia, whether it be Victoria or Queensland or New South Wales, where you have an oversight body, which is there by statute to look at police complaints um, and have a range of different powers. And then you have a civilian control model, which is the police ombudsman model, where the the organisation is completely separate from the police. It's financially and organisationally independent of the police. And in the case of the police ombudsman, we dealt with all complaints against the police service of Northern Ireland. And that is a very big difference with Australia, where in the main, the oversight bodies deal with between 2 and 4% of complaints against the police. It's a very big difference. Now, we can't go into specifics in, in this case because the matter's now before the courts. So to be clear, we're talking in generalities now. Yeah. But tell us about the best practice for the use of tasers by police. Well, well tasers are described as the a less lethal form of weapon where there's usually a, a different type of, of, of weapon will be used depending on the circumstances. In the context of tasers, they can be used to protect human life, to protect an officer or others from violence where it is occurring or is in, imminently going to occur. And it's to protect an officer that is in danger of being overpowered. So there, it, is, it has to be proportionate, necessary and reasonable in, in the circumstances. And that really applies to the use of tailors in, in most tasers rather in most jurisdictions. There is a lot of pressure on police. It's not an easy job, and we expect them to handle violent situations very quickly. How hard is it for police to make the right call? Uh, policing is not an easy job. Uh, I mean, th- that is absolutely the case. And you know, there there are many kind of uh, people with uh, armchair hindsight that will look at a police incident where individual decisions have to be made very quickly and criticise the police. Having said that, 
police have incredible powers. They have the power to arrest, they have the power to take your property, they have the power on occasion to take your life. So it's hugely important that there is the oversight of police actions and it's hugely important that police are trained proportionately to have uh, to use the weapons at their disposal. The other issue this week was the body cam footage. Police decided not to release it publicly. Again, there's no requirement here to release it. We see in other jurisdictions, police always release body cam footage in in controversial cases. What's the best policy? Well, I think there there, there are two issues here that strike me in relation to that. The first is, this is now subject to a criminal investigation. And where body cam footage is evidence associated with that, it wouldn't be appropriate to release that into the public domain while there's a criminal investigation, while it hasn't been before the courts. Afterwards is a different issue. But I think, secondly, and related to that, I think the need, the views of the family need to be considered. It isn't the case whereby, simply because the police have it, it should be released. There are, it's, it's all circumstances related to the circumstances of the individual incident. Mm, yeah, it's a, a bit more complex. There was, though, criticism this week directed at senior police over the overall handling of this. They didn't, for example, mention a taser at all in their first media release. Uh, there's the body cam footage. The, the commissioner also deliberately didn't watch that body cam footage. Some claimed it all looked like damage control. Have you got a view on on how this was handled and the best way for police to maintain confidence uh, from the public? Well, uh, the, the only thing I can say, and we, we talk generally about incidents of this type rather than the specifics of this case, I think, um, in the context of, of Northern Ireland, if there was an incident where there was death after contact with the police, that would have been subject to uh, independent investigation by the Office of the Police Ombudsman. We would have taken control of the scene. We would have interviewed witnesses. We would have seized the body cam footage and make sure it was uh, sealed and no one would have access to it. Uh, we would prefer uh, prepare a file independently to the Director of Public Prosecutions. And so it would have been taken completely out of the hands of the police. Mm-hmm. And indeed, w- one of the things when I, when I was on, when I was very clear that when an incident occurred, it was the Ombudsman who made a statement concerning that incident, not the police, because we were in control of the investigation. Uh, and also we would have appointed a family liaison officer to ensure uh, that the family were kept informed um, of the process. So clearly there are important differences between the approach adopted in Northern Ireland and, and what we're seeing here, whereby the police are uh, issued a statement in relation to this, as they do with other incidences. And also the police, let's not, let's not forget, are investigating this. I think there was some talk that this was an independent investigation. It's worth remembering that it's carried out by the uh, homicide squad and they are investigating. So effectively it is the police investigating the police in relation to this. Very different situation from what occurred in Northern Ireland. Is that an independent investigation? Well, I think there are two issues here and I'm not in any way questioning the integrity of those carrying out the investigation, but public confidence is important in relation to any incident of this type. And I think that in order to improve public confidence and increase public confidence, it's important that independence is demonstrated. So if you're asking me, do I think that the police investigating the police is an independent investigation? I'm afraid my answer to that is no, I don't think it is. The Law Enforcement Conduct Commission is overseeing this investigation into the case. This week it admitted some of its powers are illusory, that is a a mirage, Uh, For example, the Commission's never been able to actually be in the room when an officer's interviewed for an internal probe. Is that sort of thing acceptable in your eyes? 
No, I don't think it is. I mean, if, if you're conducting an investigation or if you've oversight of an investigation, you should have right of access to all of the evidence and material that's being collected. Uh, in the context of Northern Ireland, um, it was the Office of the Police Ombudsman staff who carried out the interviews with witnesses and suspects, not, not the police. So clearly you think we could do better here in Australia when it comes to police oversight and independent investigations of police actions. What do you think is the, the best way to move to a better system? What does it take? Well, I think there, there, there's several issues there. I mean, I think, first of all, there, there needs to be strong legislation underpinning the existence of police oversight organisations so that the, the oversight body has right of access to all information that uh, the police have when they're conducting an investigation. I think it's particularly important whenever you get to critical incidents, uh, where there's death after contact with invest uh, after police, that those in investigations are carried out independently. Uh, in Northern Ireland, the office of the staff of the office of the police ombudsman had the powers of a police constable, so they could arrest police officers, they could search their property, they give them equal status, uh, and also the the ombudsman's office had the power to compel the police to conduct disciplinary hearings um, if the incident was serious enough. So there's a range of issues where I think um, could be improved in order to develop uh, independent police oversight across not only in New South Wales, but I think across different states in Australia as well. Michael Maguire, the former police ombudsman for Northern Ireland. It was just a political rally, but it felt like a rock star event. We are now welcoming the Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi! Thousands cheered on India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi at Olympic Park in Sydney this week. Anthony Albanese was there too, getting rapturous applause and keen to talk about the blossoming relationship between India and Australia. Now, we want to see more connections, more Australian and Indian students living and studying in each other's countries and bringing those experiences home. More business leaders and artists and families sharing your experiences and your knowledge and your ideas. But as India strengthens ties with Australia and the US, there are some big strategic questions about how India deals with countries like China and Russia now and into the future. Priya Chako is a senior lecturer in international politics at the University of Adelaide. Well, it's pretty typical for an Indian political rally. I think some of the diaspora brought that energy to Australia and Modi does tend to inspire a lot of excitement and, and pride and I think that's what we, what we saw uh, in Sydney. What did you make of Prime Minister Albanese's performance there? Yeah, it was interesting. He's uh, clearly embracing the Indian diaspora. I think both India and Australia see the diaspora as a source of uh, economic ties, the way to strengthen economic ties. They're also politicians. They want, you know, they're always looking for support for their political agendas. It was interesting that Albanese, you know, urged at one point the crowd to vote for the voice. And I think Labor Party is looking for votes from the Indian community. What was a little bit startling for me was that he was wearing an orange tie, which is the colour of the 
of Modi's party, the BJP, and it's a colour that's associated with militant Hindu nationalism. Mm. So I think that was a little bit off-putting for quite a few people in the diaspora to see that. It sort of suggests that he's aligning with a particular type of politics in India. And he's done it before by, you know, wearing scarves associated with the VHP, which is another Hindu nationalist militant organisation. So that's a worrying trend, I think. Well, indeed, there were protests too. A group of Khalistan supporters gathered outside. They're a separatist movement. And Modi, although he's popular, he's a pretty polarising figure in India too, isn't he? Yeah, he is. He uh, is known for his brand of Hindu nationalism, which tends to promote the interests of the Hindu community, the majority. And he is accused of stepping on the rights of minorities, particularly Muslims, but also uh, Christians and Sikhs and uh, Dalits as well, lower caste people. So he's very controversial in in India and some of those tensions are coming in to, to Australia. So the Khalistan supporters, uh, supporters of a, a movement for a, a, a separate state in, in the state of Punjab at the moment, uh, that that was a, a separatist movement that emerged in the 1980s, but it's sort of come back, surprisingly come back into fashion now, probably because in during the, the farmers' protests a couple of years ago, there were farmers protesting some agricultural policies that Modi introduced, and the government chose to respond to those protests in part by calling those protesters Khalistani separatists. And as a result, that's given new impetus to the Khalistan movement we have a lot of uh, migrants from that region in Australia and they're, they're supporting that movement. Yeah, more broadly, India is a democracy, no doubt about that, but Modi has lurched away somewhat from a free and open liberal democracy. He's never, for example, held a press conference. How hard does that make things for the Australian government as ties get closer? I think it's hard to to hold Modi to account and actually that's one of the secrets of his success. He's very careful to not say anything at all about violence that his party, you know, is implicated in 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 India. So it it gives foreign leaders, I think, the chance to actually overlook some of the things that are happening uh, in India because it's convenient for them to do so. But I have to say not, you know, not all political leaders in Australia have done that. One of the other protests that emerged during this visit was a more quiet protest, which was at Parliament House. There was a screening of a banned BBC documentary called The Modi Question, which raises questions about um, Modi's complicity, alleged complicity in um, violence in the state of Gujarat, where he was the chief minister. And that screening of that documentary was attended by some Green senators and it was organised by another diaspora group, which is concerned about the human rights situation. Looking to security, the question of China, uh, India and China have this long land border. There are regular skirmishes there. But, but more broadly, what are India's red lines, not just on the border, but across the Indo-Pacific? I think anything that threatens India's security directly is a red line. So if uh, Pakistan crosses the line of control in Kashmir, that would be a red line. If China launches an offensive for territory across the disputed border, that would be a red line. I don't 
think that uh, a skirmish in Taiwan, for instance, would would be a red line. It's mm. all very um, South Asia focused for India. So India wouldn't be interested in in getting involved in any sort of conflict over Taiwan. I don't think that will happen. No, it doesn't directly threaten India's interests. So I, I don't think that they would get militarily involved in in anything to do with Taiwan. Do we need to then manage our expectations of India's role in the Quad, for example? I think so. Look, India has a close relationship with Russia. It's it's a relationship that's been strengthened since the Ukraine war. So Australia and India have quite different um different relationships with Russia, for instance, they have a convergence on on China and seeing it as a threat, particularly in the last few years. But there are things that India won't do when it comes to, to China. But at the same time, we're not entirely sure how Australia will react to a skirmish in Taiwan. So, uh, you know, there are some convergences there. Yeah, as you say, um, there is this long-standing defence relationship that India has with Russia. Is there any sign that that relationship is changing in any way? I think it's strengthening, actually. Mm. So India is dependent on Russia for weapons, but not just any weapons. It's advanced weapons that it can't get from other countries. And that places limits on how closely... India can militarily cooperate with um, countries like Australia and the United States because those countries don't want their sensitive defence equipment interacting with sensitive Russian equipment. It poses a security problem. But the relationship is becoming closer, I think, because India is now buying vast amounts of oil and gas from, from Russia and it's currently negotiating a free trade agreement with Russia um, it's, it's using, you know, Russia's digital payment system to get around sanctions. So that relationship is not weakening, in my view. And do you see India trying to flex more muscle on the global stage in the years ahead? I think it's trying to to do that, but it's trying to do that more in a, a soft power sort of way rather than a sort of strategic way or a military way. It's it's more about trying to build the economy, but also trying to portray it as a, you know, democratic counterweight to, to China. That's Priya Chako from the University of Adelaide. The US election is still almost 18 months away, but the presidential race has already begun. Donald Trump's main challenger for the Republican Party nomination got in the ring this week. The governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, officially launching his campaign. American decline is not inevitable. It is a choice. And we should choose a new direction, a path that will lead to American revitalization. Ron DeSantis made his big announcement on Twitter's audio streaming service in a conversation with Twitter's owner, Elon Musk, and tech investor, David Sachs. It did not go well. Uh, can, are you there? Can you hear us? I think you're I'm here. 20 minutes of technical glitches and long, awkward silences before things got underway. His opponents pounced, calling him Ron Disaster on social media. Molly Ball is Time Magazine's national political correspondent. It um, seems to have been a sort of last-minute decision to go this unconventional route. They obviously took a big risk, and in this case, it was a risk that 
quite dramatically did not pay off and that uh, threatens to undercut the whole rationale for his candidacy, given that he was banking so much on this image of, of sort of competence and being the, the man with a plan. Uh, and, and then the very first thing he tries to do is an official candidate for the presidency and it all falls apart on the launch pad, as it were. So let's take a little step back, if you could just remind us who Ron DeSantis is and why he reckons he can be president. Sure. Well, he is uh, the governor of Florida. He's the popular governor of Florida, now in his second term, was re-elected by a very wide margin this past November. Uh, Sterling resume, Yale University, Harvard Law School, uh, was in the Navy, uh, a veteran uh, who served in Iraq. Plus the way he's led Florida, he has really uh, pushed the state in a, in a starkly uh, conservative direction. He really took a different approach to COVID than a lot of other governors, pushed to open the schools, open businesses, open restaurants earlier than a lot of particularly uh, liberal governors. And, and, and really represents a sort of new type of post-Trump Republican, right? Despite his roots in the traditional Republican Party, he has embraced a more sort of populist style of conservatism, pioneering a lot of these approaches to the so-called culture wars, whether it's uh, seeking to change uh, what he views as, as, as the overly woke, overly focused on, on diversity, overly focused on LGBTQ issues, and in his approach to things like like transgender issues, has sought to really emphasize uh, the social conservatism uh, rather than the more traditional uh, sort of fiscal conservatism that we saw from an, a sort of earlier iteration of Republican. Yeah, so he is popular in Florida. Does he have the charisma to beat Donald Trump and, and to become president? Well, we shall see. And that, I think, is what this contest is going to shape up to be, is a contest of, of policy versus personality. As many have noted, DeSantis is an introvert. He's not someone who relishes human contact and often seems to be suffering when he has to do the sort of normal political tasks of shaking hands and kissing babies. He can be quite awkward uh, among people. Now, let's not forget, back in 2016, when he was a first-time candidate, uh, Donald Trump didn't do any of that either. He was not known, and he's not someone who's known for his likability or personality, right? He's someone who the vast majority of Americans dislike quite strongly. Uh, so uh, so it is funny to hear this, you know, Trump being presented as, as the candidate of, of personability and, and, and charisma, you know, that, that's sort of an, a, an alternate universe uh, type, of, type of statement to be making. Uh, but nonetheless, Trump does like people, uh, and Trump is not very engaged with the particulars of policy, right? He's never been someone who was known for his engagement uh, with uh, things like the Federalist Papers or Supreme Court precedents. And these are things that uh, DeSantis has spent quite a lot of time thinking about and writing about and pontificating about. So that is really going to be the question posed by this contest between these two men. On the one hand, you have the, the Trump personality that so many Republican voters like very much. On the other hand, you have DeSantis saying maybe he's not Mr. Personality, but he can be more effective uh, than Trump and more electable, right? I mean, Trump Trump has now been responsible for losing three straight national elections for the Republican Party, 2018, 2020, and 2022. And so DeSantis is saying, look, I took this big swing state, I pushed it in a conservative direction on policy, and I came out a winner. Yeah, indeed, in the Twitter launch, Ron DeSantis didn't mention Donald Trump by name, but there was some pretty sharp criticism of the former president in the form of this line. There is no substitute for victory. 
We must end the culture of losing that has infected the Republican Party in recent years. The tired dogmas of the past are inadequate for a vibrant future. We must look forward, not backwards. Why is he presenting such criticism in such a veiled way, though? Why is he treading so carefully? Well, in the past 24 hours, he's done a series of of interviews in conservative media. And in some of them, he has taken on Trump a little bit more frontally. Like he has, you know, actually said the, the name Trump for one thing. Uh, but it has all been on this same, in this same vein of uh, criticizing Trump uh, on, on policy, criticizing him for his handling of COVID. Uh, this, is, this is fascinating. For, sorry sorry uh, to interrupt. This is fascinating to me, this criticism of Trump for his COVID response, not because it was too lax, but because it was too strong. Um, can you help us understand right. that? Well, it has become an article of faith on the right. I mean, there's a sizable portion of the right that believes that the whole thing was a hoax and uh, that the vaccines are a hoax. And DeSantis has flirted with some of that sentiment too. But the uh, less crazy version of the argument uh, is that the sort of, you know, woke bureaucrats and and, and corporate media uh, kept, uh, kept these lockdowns going for far too long. You know, in a lot of blue states, uh, including Virginia, where my kids go to public school, uh, there was virtually no in-person school for all of the 2020-2021 school year, uh, despite the mounting, you know, international evidence that that would have been safe to do. And we're now dealing with a, a, a lot of the consequences of that in the form of declining test scores and deteriorating mental health among our children. And Trump, uh, you know, obviously uh, didn't take the toughest approach to, to COVID, but he was very inconsistent. And he did, uh, you know, keep Fauci in the bureaucracy for the duration of his presidency. He did, uh, you know, despite going back and forth on things like masks, uh, he was responsible for, for the COVID vaccine uh, that so many conservatives uh, now revile. So it is, as you say, quite quite interesting and a bit strange, I think, to hear Trump being criticized uh, not for being too lax on COVID, but for being too tough. But that is the way a lot of American conservatives now see it. So just returning to that earlier question on why is Ron DeSantis treading so carefully around Donald Trump? There is a very simple reason that so many of these Republican candidates have avoided making a more forceful case about Trump, and that is that the vast majority of Republican voters, particularly uh, the died-in-the-wool Republicans who vote in Republican primaries in, in presidential elections, they still really, really, really love Donald Trump. Uh, despite his uh, overwhelming unpopularity uh, with the general public, Trump remains extremely popular with Republican voters, uh, most of whom do not believe that he actually lost the 2020 election. And so if you want to be the nominee of the Republican Party, the conventional wisdom is you, you disqualify yourself if you, if, you, if you hate Trump, because most of your voters not only like Trump, but they feel a deep sense of loyalty to him because Trump... Uh, you know, has this sort of cult of personality, this this sort of fandom appeal uh, to his supporters. And he has persuaded so many Republican voters that an attack on him is an attack on them, in essence. Right. So Trump's got the base, but he's still not popular with the general public. So can Ron DeSantis in a hypothetical matchup beat Joe Biden in 2024? 
anything is possible and we and we don't know uh how the general election is going to shape up there's a lot of ground to cover between now and then so so yes he it, it, it it's certainly possible i mean uh the president biden is very unpopular uh and uh even most democrats wish he were not running for re-election so i think you have to believe that no matter who the republican nominee is whether it's trump or desantis or someone else uh they've got a they've got a good chance of beating biden Molly Ball, Time Magazine's national political correspondent. And that's the episode for this week. You can subscribe, just search for the This Week podcast. It's produced by Madeline Jenner, Rachel Hayter, Bridget Fitzgerald, Marcus Hobbs and me, David Lipson. Catch you next time.